This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballerman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballerman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 161 brought to you in association with Smart Pension and the unlistedboards.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Marwan Forsley, CEO of Veeam, that's V-E-E-M, to discuss global payments for small businesses. Marwan has been in payments for many years and was first a founder in 2002, so speaks from long experience of both. Veeam is a global payments network used by small businesses around the world, which allows them to pay their vendors, suppliers, and contractors anytime, anywhere. They handle payments, to 110 countries in 50 plus currencies and have about 200,000 B2B customers. One way they manage such a long list of countries is use a unique so-called multi-rail technology. Basically, they've wired themselves up through a bunch of different conduits, ranging from bank-to-bank transfers at one end, through likes of card payments in the middle, to at the other via cryptocurrencies. I'll leave the details to Marwan to explain, but this enables them to have a broader range of options for any particular transfer, and for the end users, enables them to have a much richer range of payments destinations. In this year's New Year special, boy does that seem a lifetime ago now, I was reviewing the past five and a half years of the London FinTech podcast and remarking upon how many FX firms around in 2012. Well, FX is still there, of course. You can't transfer money from one country to another without either the buyer or the seller having to do an FX transaction. Interestingly, however, and partly to my rhetorical question in January about where all the FX fintechs have gone, they're all still here, but what in 2014 was a focus on FX rates became embedded more in the how on earth do I play a supplier in Bolivia payments question. Just getting the money from A to B can be more of a challenge than the rate. The rate doesn't matter if you can't transfer funds. Maybe that's why Veeam spent so long laying down so many tracks. So let's look at both multi-rail payments, but not neglect the age-old problem about how do you judge whether you're getting a good FX rate. As long-term listeners might recall, the more B2B FX fintechs in London back in the day would quote you a rate up front, whereas the more consumery, media-hyped FX fintechs would later email you what the rate was. As I found out decades earlier, the latter approach leaves a gap a mile wide for all sorts of practices. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, Marwan. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. And in terms of kicking off, you're on the west coast of the States. We've had a a rare two weeks in a row of American guests. And we thought we'd talk about something which there hasn't been very much of, something which actually happens quite a lot in life normally, but hasn't been happening recently, which was sports. And uh, in particular, at my end, as listeners will know, I'm a fan of MotoGP. And we've just had the first two races of the season, the, the motorbike Formula One, basically, in Jerez in Spain. And uh, an interesting stat from that was Mark Marquez, who was a sort of multiple world champion, crashed last weekend. And their airbag crash protection leather suits, very sophisticated things, record the acceleration rate. And Marquez, when he crashed, the instantaneous G-force was over 25 Gs. Can you imagine that? That is speed. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, funny enough, actually, that didn't cause him the, the injury because of the airbags. But then uh, later, unfortunately, his bike hit him at about 100 miles an hour and, and, and broke his arm. Being crazy in a motorbike rider, he tried to come back to race a couple of days ago at the second race, but uh, only managed a few days. I mean, it was 40 degrees centigrade as well, so it's a bit tough. Anyway, what sports do you I follow? I am, uh, you know, in uh, fast-moving sports, but not as fast as not that racing. Fast. <laughs> <laughs> I do like soccer. I used to play quite a bit of soccer when I was younger and, and skiing. Um, uh, you know, these are two sports that I've spent quite a bit of my younger life in. And which position do you play at football? Yeah, football in, in uh, UK standards, I, I do play forward. I played, you know, mid as, as well as forward, but mainly forward. And uh, I have no idea. I mean, here in schools, it really depends upon the type of school. I mean, I actually liked football. I supported for my sins Aston Villa, and I liked kicking a ball around myself. But my school played rugby, which I hated because hated it was just a sort of basically a game... It's a kind of an arbitrage on puberty, really, which is when you get to the stages of like 12, 13, 14, it's whoever's got the testosterone first just crushes people on the pitch and they call it a sport kind of stuff. So I was never a fan of rugby. But in the States, at school, I have no idea, actually, what percentage of kids would play soccer and what percentage would play American football. You know, I, I don't really know, but I, I think it's one of the fastest growing sports in the U.S. is actually the, the U.S. soccer. And I think it gained popularity after all the hype that uh, we've seen in the past 10 years, both in, uh, in Europe as well as, you know, our Brazilian friends. And, and that whole you know, remarkable display of really interesting matches uh, got people excited about taking the sports in, in, on the U.S. side. So we've seen increases in soccer fans uh, in the U.S. as well. It's a good sport. You don't have to be, uh, you know, as big on testosterone. You do have to be more skilled with your with your feet. But uh, it's a it's a good sport to play and watch. Yes, and just to get my re retaliation in first, as you're thousands of miles away, that's quite some kind of uh, it's a trend that I imagined. But it's a bit anomalous because I thought America liked playing sports that next to nobody else played. So you could have a World Series in sort of baseball, for example, which would make it so much easier to be world champions. Whereas if you're joining in soccer, lots of people play soccer. Actually, it's much more competitive. Yeah, you know, it's it's also a really interesting team sport because, you know, it, it engages multiple people on the field and uh, has a good dynamic to it, you know, back and forth between the uh, side you're playing uh, against. And, and uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, schools and, and uh, uh, systems in place now to motivate the sport and to encourage people to participate in it. Yes, yes, and it's and probably sort of less difficult for injuries and stuff like that. So when you weren't busy playing sport and you gave up sort of studying and books and all that kind of stuff, by way of career journey, how did you get from sort of your childhood days of innocence and uh, spare time to now being a founder a couple of times around where sort of innocence and, and spare time disappeared a long time ago? It did disappear a long time ago. I, <laughs> <laughs> I started my career in engineering. I did computer engineering. So spent a few years in developing code and and uh, over time, I always thought that I am more interested in being on the product side and essentially, uh, you know, working on on how products should should work. And, and so we ended up uh, going into the startup world. I uh, ended up in a company that had the first voice over IP gateway in the market that ended up selling to Nokia. And that was my first experience in startups and, and, and how startups can be really interesting vehicles to develop new products into the market. So from there, uh, I ended up in Nokia for a few years. 
left and started uh, another company called eBillMe, which uh, I founded and then later sold into Western Union. Stayed there for a couple of years, left and started Veeam. So my entire journey has been going back and forth between startups and very large companies. Well, that's another coincidence because not only do we have two American guests uh, in a row in a show which is generally sort of emphasising the word London, but last week's guest was Clay Wilkes from Galileo Financial Technology, who is very active in the early days of voice over IP as well, actually. So uh, this is literally a complete, uh, complete coincidence. But that kind of really technical stuff must, in a way, be quite a good preparation for payments, because coming from an FS perspective, payments is the dirty, nitty-gritty stuff which has been cobbled together over the sort of centuries and is really quite complex. I mean, people outside payments think, oh, payments is fairly straightforward. That's not very hard, is it? Until you go into it and then you find actually there's sort of a, a ton of detail inside it. But having said that, would you say that payments are simpler than voice over IP? Because if you've got a voice, you've got to chop it up and you've got to make sure it goes around the world and gets reconstructed in the same order and, and, and doesn't miss things and like that. I mean, which, which is the hardest technically, as it were, or the different dimensions of technical difficulty, perhaps? You know, it's really interesting, actually, comparatives between communication industry and, and payment industry. I, I would say there's actually a lot of similarities. Uh, both are disciplines that require quite a bit of accuracy, quite a bit of ruggedness and scale with it. Can you imagine, for example, if you're building software and you connected uh, the wrong people together and you, you know, you're supposed to call your mom and you end up talking to some stranger <laughs> by, by mistake, uh, that is a fairly costly mistake. And, and in payments, it's the same thing. If you're sending money to uh, you know, one of your suppliers and you end up sending it to the wrong uh, party, then you know, that money is going to be fairly difficult to unwind and, and bring it back to the right parties. So they, they have a lot of similarities in the need for ruggedness, scale, security. They're very similar in that payments like communication is a two-party system. You have the payer and the payee in the world of communication. You have two people talking to each other. And they're both regulated industries as well. And so it creates a lot of uh, interesting parallels between the two of them. I'd say that uh, you know payments, uh, as you mentioned, uh, I call it it's not walk in the park. It, you know, it does uh, sound simple on the surface that, hey, you're moving money to another country, but, but it, it is one of the more complicated endeavors because you're dealing with people's money, you're dealing with regulatory systems around the world, compliance, security, you're dealing with technicalities about how money moves, and you're dealing with KYC and KYB issues that are required before you even move money. So the amount of moving parts that you have to administer and pull together to complete the movement of funds from point A to point B is quite extensive and you have to have quite a bit of know-how to get it done. Right. Okay. Well, we'll come on to a little bit more in a minute, Veeam, um, because you're clearly masochistic or, or like a challenge in that you didn't just connect all these countries that you deal with together in a kind of spider's web, but you did it using five different spiders' webs, which is sort of uh, volunteer step forward, perhaps. But we'll come back to that. Anyway, so kicking off in terms of the sort of the history of this whole sort of payment slash uh, FX space, as I was just randomly reflecting in the intro, in London anyway, in, in 2014, everybody wanted to do FX. Now, in terms of the sort of thousand people that contact me a month, no one wants to contact me about FX, but everyone wants to contact me about payments. Is there a sort of a rebranding thing going on here? Or, or was it literally, as I said, that people focused for, for the sake of argument on simple currency pairs at the beginning, like, you know, the dollar sterling and the euro. And, and therefore, the most of the complexity in that was simply in the rate. But then they found that actually, if they were just focusing on sort of rate, as it were, rather than connecting things up, then getting sort of 
Bolivia and Zambia and, you know, South Korea involved was actually the hard thing? I think FX is actually a piece of a puzzle and it's probably the smaller piece of the puzzle. Because take an example, if I'm moving money from, let's keep it simple for now, from a customer in the US to a customer in London. Let's go through the steps required to get that done. So first there's the money movement in the US domestically. So from the customer to the provider's bank account, then it goes through banking systems to go to the, to the correspondent bank in the UK, and then from there to the receiving party in the UK. Look how many systems already are in place. There's domestic payment in the US, there's the cross-border element, and there's domestic payment in, on the UK front. And in order to do this, you got to know the party that's sending the money, so KYC, and the party receiving the money, which is KYC on the, on the receiving end. So when you look at all this, ironically, the FX portion part, which is converting from US to pound, is probably the simplest and, and, and maybe the smallest part of the actual delivery of the funds. A lot of the issues are all about last mile delivery and KYC and KYB because you can't just move money without knowing who the parties are. And so the reason why maybe the whole focus now is on payments, uh, it's not really a rebranding. It's because payments at the end of the day is what actually is being accomplished here. You're moving money from this person to that person. And the foreign exchange part is only a piece of that equation. You know, obviously you have to worry about the price and making sure you, you know, you got a fair price for that exchange of money. But, you know, that's a piece of the puzzle, not, not the entire thing. Right. That makes sense to me. So in terms of payments, if I go back decades to when nobody really thought about doing international payments or very, very few people who actually knew did international payments. I mean, I don't know, British Petroleum or, you know, IBM would be doing payments, but, you know, you and your friends would never do an international uh, payment and, and most businesses were more domestic. So, for example, pre-1978 in the UK, there were exchange controls for the start, which is I couldn't just send money abroad without asking the sort of the government or, or, or whatever it was effectively. So from those days, payments, I was about to say, work well in most countries, but the US is... <laughs> For some reason, I never quite understood, somewhat backwards in terms of checks and, and all this kind of stuff. But for quite a long time, do, doing a payment from bank to bank in the UK has been fine. It was a bit slow and all that kind of stuff. And, and different countries have different mechanisms. And then what we've seen in terms of literally globalisation in the past sort of 30, 40 years is a greater interconnection of all these completely different systems. And as you say, the tech systems, regulation has come from nowhere that didn't really exist 40 years ago at all. What wonderful naive times they were. And people have found that very challenging. So that creates all sorts of issues. Which particular issues was it that led you one morning to wake up and think, I know what I'm going to do today. I'm going to have a coffee and then I'm going to found Veeam to do payments. What particular thing did you see in the marketplace? What thing did you think was broken that you thought I can solve that and I can solve that in a way that's going to make sense for us making money and for my customers making money? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, think of when you pay coffee, when you buy coffee in the morning, do you think of how you pay? I mean, it's something that you just do. It's habitual. You go into your wallet, whatever you have, cash card, you pay and you move on. Your mind is somewhere else. You're thinking about your emails and calendars and what your day is like and, you know, everything else in life. Payments is not something you think about. Now, let's do the flip of that. Let's say you're moving money internationally. Now, you can't just do it. You have to really think about it and you have to plan your day around it. You have to 
get the receiver's bank account information, the SWIFT codes, you got to figure out the foreign exchange, you got to figure out fees. Uh, if you do it through the bank, you got to make sure you, you you either can do it online, you have sometimes you have to show up to the bank, to the branch and do it in person. You have to make sure you do it before cutoff times. I mean, look at the complexity for sending money from one person to another in an international setting compared to buying coffee in the morning. I mean, it just goes from really simple to really complex. And I always thought that it, it is wild that this problem have not been simplified and sorted out. And that's why we started Beam. It really is the idea that there needs to be a very different approach to international payments. And you need to structure it in a way where it takes all this complexity and simplifies it into things that people relate to. All I need to know when I'm sending money, it's like, who am I sending to? So the email address that I'm sending this money to, how much am I sending? And when is it going, when is it going to get there? And that's it. Yes, absolutely. Now, in terms of that world, in terms of trying to connect it all fairly simply, then I think most people who've been on the internet for a while, their first experience of that would be PayPal. So PayPal, you know, they had their little beachhead with eBay, blah, 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 blah. And I think roughly everybody in the world, is, everybody in the world, everybody who's very connected to the internet has come across sort of PayPal in the past. So they were an early solution to, to connecting things up. I haven't followed it in detail very much. I don't actually use them much myself personally these days. So obviously they had some way that they achieved quite a lot of scale quite quickly. But then in terms of what do they leave on the table, I suspect that their margins are, are pretty sort of chunky. They seem to be as a as an individual you know i think uh, paypal historically is a significant event in the in, in the industry because i i think in terms of money movement I, I think of them in uh you know large sort of categories so the first category historically have been through the banks the bulk of the money around the world move through bank wire you, you know you go to your bank and you send international wire then there was the second industry, which then became an you know alternative to the bank, and it's still a fairly small industry in this big scheme of things, and that is the foreign exchange companies and remittance companies that basically provided an alternative infrastructure to moving money through the banks. And generally, that industry tends to be sender focused. You get a slightly better UI compared to the bank, and cheaper FX compared to the bank. That's the second industry that got created along the way. The significance of PayPal is the emergence of the third type of industry, which we call peer-to-peer -peer payments, which is the idea of having both the payer and the payee on the same platform talking to each other. And I think uh, there was a whole bunch of other companies created that uh, are similar to that structure. So, you know, think of like Venmo, you know, Square Cash, Zelle, WeChat Pay, Alipay, you know, Revolut, all kinds of companies that had that structure then emerged where both the sender and the receiver are party to the system. So that third category, peer-to-peer -peer models, are actually, you know, the one that had seen more scale and faster scale compared to the second category, which is foreign exchange companies and remittance companies. So I think the significance of PayPal is that they, they kind of set the tone or started that trend of that third type of way of moving money. And that system has been successful. Now, it's a system that, that was designed not necessarily to optimize foreign exchange, if they're far from optimal. It was designed around simplicity. And I think a lot of the follow-on companies that, that were in that space were also designed around simple experiences primarily. 
Okay, so going back to the morning when you were buying your coffee, not paying much attention to how you were paying for it, and then then while they were making your double skinny latte frappuccino or whatever it was, with sprinkles on the top, you thought, I know, I'm going to set up Veeam today. Did you think that you're going to be one of those categories, or are you going to be a fourth category, or did you suddenly think, I'll do multi-rail because they put LSD in your coffee or something? <laughs> I think Veeam is an example of the third category, peer-to-peer, but for businesses, because a lot of the peer-to-peer models have traditionally been consumer-type businesses. So if you think of like Square Cash or Venmo or WeChat Pay, I mean, these are consumer businesses and they're domestic in their orientation primarily. And so what we wanted to do with Veeam is basically take the lessons learned from that model, apply it to businesses and have it run globally, both you know in a domestic setting as well as international. Now, where the concept of multi-rail fits in, that's a whole different philosophy as well. That's an idea that in order to simplify movement of funds, you got to make sure that the, the rail ends up working for you. And there needs to be multiple rails because it's a big world. And there's too many use cases, too many settings, too many sizes of payments. And you want to make sure that you can have the various technologies work for you to move that money from point A to point B. That's the concept of multi-rail. And your rails, to be clear, are what? If I'm going to do some London FinTech podcast hoodies, as I've been mentioning recently, it's my idea of the year. I've been locked down too long. And uh, I persuade you after, after the show's over that you know, this hoodie will make you look even cooler than the hoodie you're wearing now. And you send me 20 bucks and, and I'll send you the hoodie. Don't worry, you know where I live, so you, you'll get the hoodie. What five rails could that 20 bucks actually get from you to me over? We have five that, that we work with and, and we use them in different settings. Uh, so the first one, it's transferring funds over our own bank accounts. So this is very similar to the way remittance companies work. If I'm moving money to London, I have a bank account in the UK and I have a bank account in the US. And so money is credited on one side and debited on the other side. So that's the first rail. The second rail, third-party payment providers. There are some countries that are highly regulated and we are not able to service customers in that country directly. So we need to move funds to a payment provider that is licensed on the ground to move uh, domestic payment in that country. And so we give them US dollars, they convert to local currency and send it out to the recipient. And what's an example of that type of country? China, for example, a complicated market. So what we do, we work with cross-border payment providers that you know we hand them US dollars, they convert to RMB, send RMB out to the recipient. So that's an example of third-party providers. We work on the blockchain we, where we essentially use crypto as a thin synthetic cross from one currency to another. So for example, if I'm sending money from US to Mexico, you're, I'm using the cryptos as, as a way to convert from US dollar to pesos. So I go US dollar to crypto to crypto to pesos. And that is a synthetic cross that, that's used to convert from one currency to another. And you do that without running for sort of you know, 15 microseconds risk on, on, on Bitcoin or whatever, do you? Is it instantaneous or is it just a tiny risk? Yeah, we don't hold inventories. We basically lock the transactions before we execute them. And we don't care about the, the price of any of the cryptos. We just you know lock everything before we trade it. So that's the third rail. Then we also move money real time on, on cards. So we're, we're integrated into you know Visa and MasterCard's uh, rails so that we can move money directly to bank accounts connected to your debit card. 
And then we also have access to Swift, which we use in very long tail markets. We use it for very large transactions. We use it for like-to-like transactions. So we're not married to any of the rails. We are married to a good customer experience and we optimize the rail based on whatever is best for the user. And that's fundamentally a philosophy that we really like that, you know, the world needs to have multiple rails and the rails should work for you, not the other way around. So if this was a, uh, this analogy is not going to work at all, I'm already regretting it, which is that if Avim made cars, all of what you just said would be under the hood. It would be invisible to me. You know, I just drive the car. And this is a really stupid analogy. It's, it's getting late in the day here. And for example, let's say I was driving to Bristol. I would use a diesel engine. Sorry, the, the car would use a diesel engine. If I was driving to Newcastle, it would use a petrol engine. If I was driving to Huddersfield, it would use a, an electric motor or something like that. But basically, uh, behind this awful analogy, which I really wish I hadn't started metaphor, it's invisible to the user, but it provides functionality in that car in the Veeam payments experience that you wouldn't have without all these different engines or all these different rails. Yeah, let me give you a slightly different analogy. A slightly better one, hopefully. (laughs) If it's worse, we're in trouble. (laughs) Let's say you're going from London to Paris. You can fly, you can take a train, you can drive. You choose whatever is, you know, best for you. I mean, some some days you you don't have time, you want to fly. Some days you just want to, you have more time and you want to take an alternative transportation method. You choose whatever is best for you. That's the key thing. It's the same idea for payments, except that we're hiding it from you and we optimize it on the back end. And the reason for that is when we actually exposed it, you know, people don't care. People just want you to pick whatever is the best option and just do it. And some class of customers do care and want to optimize that. And that tends to be the very large customers. But in general, for SMBs, you know, I just want to sell my t-shirts and or my hoodies and, and just just do it for me. That's how they, you know, react to the system. And so everything that we talked about is behind the scenes. It's not visible to the user. I see. And just to finish off the sort of slight Veeam arc. So I assume that uh, if you're B2B, that you're more of a sort of, I don't know, a browser interfacey website stuff that I go as opposed to an app. I mean, you know, businesses presumably don't get their mobile phone out and download apps and and pay like that, or, or maybe they do both. We do both. I mean, it's primarily a web app but it's you know, adaptive to your mobile phone. And so it's designed in a way where, regardless of the type of phone you have, it, it adapts to that. Okay, so before we get on to the future of where you think this is all going, we did have quite a, a lengthy conversation when we were preparing this podcast on the question which sounds extremely simple to anybody who isn't in the foreign exchange markets. And to people who are in the FX markets, they kind of philosophically know that almost in a sense the question doesn't exist. So the question being, of course, which is what's a good FX rate? Now, of course, that exists and that you can go and, on, and change your holiday money here and, or there and you get more money. So actually, it, it makes sense on that level. But as I was saying 30 years ago when I was running Global Fixed Interest for Management, we had FX dealers. There is no such thing as the FX rate between the US dollar and sterling because it, it's actually now different from when I started speaking. And there isn't a rate because I could call Barclays or I could look on, you know, on my little Bloomberg terminal and I get two numbers there and HSBC have got two numbers. So one of the problems is that it's very hard to say what the rate is. And therefore, in a sense, it's very hard for businesses to indicate how good the rate is they're getting. I mean, you know, there's a well-known example of here, TransferWise sort of got told off, I think, four years out of six by the Advertising Standards agency, essentially for, for giving untruths about sort of how good their rate was comparatively. And as I say, back in the day, if I wanted to change $10 million 
dollars into yen, I'd have FX dealers to do it for me who are, you know, employed by me and therefore they would, they would sort that out all behind the scenes and tell me what rate is. Without going into the massive complexity, in terms of businesses who are doing B2B payments around the world, I've got my hoodies business now, I've come up with this great idea of persuading every guest to, that they can only come on the show if they take 100 hoodies off me. Now I'm, I'll be doing payments around the world and I will use Veeam, uh, honestly, and I'll, I'll tell every, every guest that I'll use their thing, whatever it takes to get the th hoodies thing um, going. If I'm a big company, I have a treasury department and the treasury department, they're professionals, they sort it out. And I say, did we get a good rate? And oh, yes, yes, we do this, blah, 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 you know, handed over the problem. But for many small businesses and for me in my hoodie business, I'm really busy, busy sort of, you know, ironing on the stickers on the back of my, my hoodie myself at the beginning and doing whatever it takes. I don't really have time to go into long philosophical diatribes about what the FX rate is or isn't and what Barclays are quoting and HSBC and, and all that uh, jazz. So how do we get to... How do we get just a simple answer to, to, to businesses, which is, yeah, this, these guys give you a good, good deal. You know, it's a, it's a super interesting question. And, and the entire FX industry is sort of designed from the ground, grounds up to be opaque. And it's hard to figure out what actually is going on because there's, you know, multiple reasons why it can be gamifiable in that you'll see one rate and then you know, what happens in the industry sometimes is like, you know, when you sign up and you log in, you get a different rate and then the rates change over time. And the entire thing is not clean or, or simple. We, uh, you know, operate on a philosophy that, you know, we just need to make sure that the pricing is fair to the user and fair. Basically, it's uh, whatever we get from the providers we have, we mark it up and give it to the user. And that's it. We focus on helping them with all the other issues in payments from last mile, KYC, KYB, uh, making sure we get the delivery on time. And we fixate more on that and, and just try to get a fair FX pricing. The reason why it's complicated for the user, because you know, if I'm selling my hoodies, I am focused on making sure that I have 50 hoodies to ship and I get the shipment done up by Friday because I need to get my money for the shipment that I make. And so people are more concerned about tracking the payment, delivery of the payment, making sure it gets there on time. And they just want to make sure that you're not ripping them off. That's basically it. And they know that most of the time they get ripped off when they go to generally, you know, use Bankwire because they there's the fees and there's just FX spreads that don't feel right to the user. Uh, and that's why they, they're motivated to use other systems, primarily for simplicity and second for fair pricing, because they know they're going to get a better deal than what they have today. Yes, and it's certainly a, a complex topic not to dive into the show, but I just wanted to flag it insofar as just at a very personal level. I was in Thailand in the old fashioned days when you're allowed to go where you liked in the world on a holiday and we needed some more Thai bots. And I'd got my bank card in my pocket. I got a Monzo card and I got a Revolut card. And which of them gives the best rate? Well, Monzo say they give you the MasterCard wholesale rate, whatever that means. Revolut potentially seem to have a better rate, but they're the most complicated thing possible. I didn't actually look it up, which it rather depended in whether FX markets were open in London and all sorts of stuff like that. I could work it out. I mean, I'm in Thailand. I've got jet lag. I don't know what time of day it is in Thailand, let alone in sort of London and, and all that kind of stuff. And as for, as for my bank in the, the UK, goodness knows what rate I'd got. And then, of course, you have the complexity of sort of ATMs on, on top of it. I honestly don't know what happened in there. I think I just gave up trying to get cash out. I think I just sort of tapped and paid or, or something like that. Okay, so having said that, what do you see happening in the, the next few years? What trends are there in, in B2B payments around the world? 
I think the biggest interest and demand in the market is really for significant simplification to uh, processes and to, to experiences. And you'll see that happen more broadly in fintechs and it's overdue in cross-border payments. You'll see the need for companies and businesses to really focus on the things they like focusing on, which is selling their products and less on figuring out how to deal with the payment itself. They want the provider to just do it and take it on end to end. The businesses find it awkward and annoying that it's 2020 and they send a payment to Mexico, for example, they send $100,000 to Mexico and they have no idea what happened to that payment. And yet they can track their status on airlines. They can track their pizza delivery. They, they, they can track their shipment, but they can't track their payment. I mean, it's just so bizarre and wild that I'm sending $100,000 and I don't have a way to figure out where is my money. And I know exactly where my pizza delivery is going to be when I order for lunch. So there's a lot of room for significant amount of simplification that is way overdue. This is an industry, B2B payments. Uh, it's an industry that have not seen innovation for a long period of time, for decades. And uh, we're going to see significant amount of that simplification coming up. Right. Okay. I get that. So it's really a question of bringing global payments into the digital age, whereas you say it's simple, it's clear, it's transparent, which is, oh yes, Marwin's 20 bucks. It's roughly halfway over at the Atlantic now, and it's going to land at Heathrow in 3.1 seconds or something. As you say, actually thinking of it that way around, it's totally crazy. As I, I mean, I ordered some pens today, yesterday from Amazon, some colored pens. I knew exactly where those colored pens were, but you know, as you say, send a hundred thousand bucks around the world. You, you lose track of it for quite a while. Okay. So before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there. I'd like to thank my brand partners for the podcast. Smart pension who are fast, secure and free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolment.co.uk and theunlistedboard.com, my latest project pulling together information and resources for directors of unlisted company boards to help them make their boards engines of growth. So, Marwan, we've mentioned Veeam once or twice during the show. What would you like to tell the listeners who are in up to 192 countries around the world? Only 40% are in the UK, so they really are spread around. Which the listeners should be checking out Veeam straight away and what does Veeam want more of in in which countries to be even sort of bigger and more successful than it is at the moment? We're uh, absolutely interested in more partnerships and ways to collaborate together. I mean, it's a big world and we function on a model where we uh, have partners in different countries to work with. And so the list of partners include banks where we do payment back and forth in the various countries. We're looking for distribution partners where we introduce the product through their environment to their customers. And we're interested uh, generally in any type of uh, back and forth collaboration where there's product fit between payments or any other services that are adjacent to the payment workflow. So in general, to sum it all up, you know, and that's my shameless plug here is check out veeam.com. You'll be able to sign up uh, online, test it out. And we're just looking for partners to work with all around the world, from banks to complementary products to potential distribution and, and partnership type arrangements. So having built the technology enables payments to the majority of countries in the world. I wasn't going to say that's the easy bit. (laughs) 
because as you said earlier, it's not as easy as it sounds. But the challenge you then have, of course, and I'm not sure how the marketing works and how people become aware of Veeam, as it were, which is, I don't know, the sake of argument, let's say there's a billion businesses in the world. How do you get Veeam's sort of name and, and message in front of a, a, a billion businesses? I mean, what is your basic approach to sort of globalizing on, on the customer front? It's partnerships, a lot of partnerships. We integrated into QuickBooks, Zero, NetSuite. We're interested in expanding that type of work to all kinds of partners. So listeners that you have that that have uh, an environment where uh, businesses and users uh, essentially use to do their, their day-to-day payments, we'd love to plug into that. We strongly believe that Beam should be plugged into the setting that you're in so that we simplify the payment from the in the context of the environment that you're used to. So for example, if I'm inside my accounting system or your ERP system uh, or my shopping cart, I should be able to do payments there. I don't necessarily need to go to veeam.com to just do it on the site. I mean, we'd love to have you do that as well, but it should also plug into the environment you're in. And so we're big big fans of uh, partnerships where we can embed the payment into the context that you're you're working with. Great. Well, going back to the, the unlistedboard.com uh, and my book on the small company board, um, uh, I'm sort of uh, obsessively interested in trying to help small companies, particularly in the difficult world we're in today. And business is global. And for sure, one of the most complex aspects of global is getting your payments sorted out from one country to another. So anything that simplifies that, as you guys are doing, anything that brings it into the digital age, anything that brings it into the 21st century uh, and leaves me with more time on my hands for sort of ironing transfers on the back of my hoodies and less for calling banks and hanging on queues and speaking to call centres has got to be good. So uh, thank you for that, Marwan, and I wish you every success in the future. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city Tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city With the faces so great With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? 
Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.